joy to be here. And even though I just got back from being out of the country for a month, I was actually out of the country, I think, when you messaged me and said, can you come in the last Sunday of the month? And I said, sure. And, uh, and the good news is I haven't had jet lag yet, so that's really nice. You know, D.L. Moody said that there are no limitations to those who've been in the presence of the Lord. And as I was looking at the name and all the different challenges that all of us have been through, I kept thinking about, in, the, in my head, the Lord saying to each of you individually, and then corporately, and then to the region, God has not forgotten you. God's word is true. He spoke to David, he spoke to Solomon, and they said to God, they said, God, let your word be true. And Jesus ultimately fulfilled that when he said, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so that is God saying, my word is true, my promises over you, my word over you is true, it's yes and amen, and it shall be accomplished. Sometimes it may not come in the timetable that we're looking for. And uh, as I think about the name of the church, Antioch, that God's intention has always been for the individuals as well as the corporate church here in Colorado Springs to be an Antioch sending church. So even your name has a prophetic uh, content to it that maybe even some of you individually have gone through some things. In fact, this last year or so, many have gone through prunings, but Jesus says that he even prunes good for better and more. See, God doesn't do things by addition. He does things by multiplication. It's okay. He does things by multiplication. If I plant an apple seed, I'm not going to get one apple. If I plant an orange seed, I don't get one orange. If I plant a wheat seed, I don't get one seed back or one stalk of wheat. The reality is that whatever we sow of our time, talent, and resources in the kingdom of God always comes back in multiplication and harvest. Something Pastor Jade said earlier is about the future, sowing to the future. I believe everything we do in giving of our time, talent, resources for the advancement of the kingdom of God is sowing to our future harvest. What we harvest today is not what we planted today. What we harvest today is what we've sown in the past for this moment. Amen? So every day we're sowing to our future. I have a saying that I wrote many years ago and, and kind of coined. It says that while men reach for thrones to build their own kingdoms, Jesus reached for a towel to wash men's feet. While men, reach, or men pursue exalted and high places, the most exalted one left the highest place to pursue men. And sometimes we have things so backwards that we are pursuing our own kingdoms, pursuing our own interests. A few weeks, a few months ago, I was uh, working with George Otis Jr. I've been on the board of his ministry for many years, and we've identified over a thousand plus places in the world that are experiencing elements of transforming a revival or the journey to transformation. Some amazing thing that God is doing around the world. In the midst of darkness getting darker, God is up to some great things. And it's all about perception. Perception is not always the truth, but it is the truth to the one who perceives it. And oftentimes, we let the world dictate to us our perception and how we respond, rather than going to the Lord and saying, Lord, we don't want to listen to CNN and Fox and BBC. And Father, though we know there's problems in the world, but you're up to something. We've got to get the mind and the heart of the Lord. 
And uh, a few months ago, we were doing some more taping for some new material that we're putting out. And we were at Kansas City at the, the, the IHOP University and doing some taping. And they asked me to do a piece on the power of prayer, compassion, and generosity. And then to do the counterpart to that is the spirit of self-absorption. The reason we are at lack in many ways in, I believe, in our country, in the church, it should be the church of Antioch, is that, and the ascending church. And the reason God's blessed this country in the last couple hundred plus years is because we've been like an Antioch church. We've been ascending church. We were a benevolent church. But what we've happened, what's happened is we began to lose heart. We've been distracted. And how can we change the soul of a nation if our heart is sick? Years ago, the late Dr. Bill Bright had contacted me in Washington, D.C. at the presidential prayer breakfast. And, uh, and so they contacted me if I would do a taping, two TV specials on the soul of America with Dr. Bill Bright and with uh, Max Lucado, Lucado, Tomato, Tomato, however you want to say his last name, uh, the late Chuck Colson. Uh, so I went to this meeting thinking they just wanted to get a soundbite from me, but instead they had a set set up, and, and I said, uh, when do you want me to do my little piece? They said, oh, we're waiting for the rest of the guys to get here. I'm going, wait a minute, you want me to sit on the set with these guys? Max Licato, Chuck Colson, Dr. Bill Bright, what do I have to say? I was just a one young whippersnapper, you know? And so I was on the set, and they were talking. I was just listening to them. I didn't have a word to say. And finally the producer gets under one of the cameras with a sign that says, Doug, speak. And so I finally said, if we're talking about the soul of America, then it seems to me that how can we impact the soul of a city, a community, a rural community, a nation, if the heart is sick? And I said, I believe the heart of any city, any community, any nation should be the church. If it's the church of Iran, the heart of that nation is the church. If it's the church of Indonesia, if it's in, in Korea, if it's in, in, uh, in Malaysia, wherever it is in the world, the church should be the heart of that nation. Even under oppression, oppression and persecution, the church has been empowered with the authority of heaven. The King of kings and Lord of lords has given his authority to the church that all principalities and rulerships and dominions must bow to the preeminence of Jesus, who then bestows his authority to the church. We need a strategy in his wisdom. We need his favor. And we need to begin to see how to attract his presence. What attracts the authority and presence of God in favor on our lives, individually and corporately? So I believe that the heart has been sick. We need defibrillation. And I believe that God is calling the church to awaken again, to come back to our mandate to be what God's called us to be. And so when I said God has not forgotten you, there are individual promises in your personal life that maybe you've put on the shelf, you've forgotten, you believe for other people, but you haven't seen it fulfilled in your life. God hasn't forgotten his word over you. And for the church here at Antioch Church, which is, again, transcendent of a location. It's more than a building or a location. It's even about being translocal. It's being global in your reach that what God had promised, this bastion over the last few decades, this has been the bastion, this region of the country has been a bastion of reaching the nations, but the one thing said was it wasn't reaching its own city. 
God had, over the years, had raised up great ministries and great vision and great words that God has given and promises. The nations were impacted, but something was happening here that when the water level began to rise, because we pray, Lord, let the waters rise, let the rivers flow, and those become songs and words that we sing, but they lack an understanding because when the waters come and the rains come and the waters of God's presence comes, it also exposes vermin. We love the romantic inclination of revival, but are we willing to be discerning of what comes with it? And so when the waters come, the waters rise, and the rats and the mice and the spiders and the snakes, they all begin to come up also. So we need to be aware that when God pours out his spirit, the enemy is going to try to counteract what God does. And we can't respond with a knee-jerk reaction like the world does. We have to have an opposite spirit. Years ago, I was um, doing a lot of street ministry, working with runaways and drug addicts and prostitutes and gang members. And when I was in the fitness business, I, God did a radical work in my life. And all I said was I was living with a girl from Australia in sin, claiming to be a Christian. Um, I was, uh, my best friend was killed over a cocaine drug deal. I was partying, trying to run a business. And I remember in 1981, I went to my knees in my office in Houston, Texas. I said, God, I can't take this anymore. And it wasn't an audible voice, but I heard the voice of the Lord so clearly in my spirit when he says, don't call me Lord anymore unless you're willing to live for me. Now, I could have had all kinds of theology and said, well, I'm saved by grace and and I know Jesus is the Son of God. And I did. I said, I'm saved by grace and Jesus is the Son of God, so I know I'm saved. I'm not perfect, but, you know, I'm just human. That's that excuse of the flesh, isn't it? And in God's way, how he spoke to me was so powerful that it transformed my life. When he said, Doug, even the demons in hell know who I am, what makes you any different. So I didn't try to argue with them theology. I knew at that moment God was calling me to account. And I said, Lord, if you can do anything with someone like me who has broken your heart and brought shame to your name, I'll make myself available to you the rest of the days of my life. I had no clue what he was going to do. I was 24 years old, and soon my exercise business turned into a place where people saw that something happened to Doug Stringer. They began to come every night after I closed up my business to ask questions, and soon a Bible study started. So I only just read out the Bible and told them what I read the Bible the night before. Started having prayer meetings, and pretty soon we had 150, 250, 300 people almost every night of the week would show up after I closed. And God was doing something. I had no idea what he was doing. It was just people were hungry to find out about the authenticity of Christ. And they knew that if God could do something in Doug's trigger, then God can do something in them. I began to move in the gifts of the Spirit, and I didn't even know what they were. I just read in the Bible. I just began to read, and I'd give words of knowledge, began to speak over people. And people walk in, needed deliverance, and they started manifesting, and I just started doing what the Bible said. I didn't know you were supposed to ask for all that. God just seemed to do it. When I said, well, I'll do whatever you want, make myself available, God did it. And one day I woke up and I had 17 people, runaways and prostitutes and gang members and drug addicts living in my apartment. I don't suggest this for married couples. <laughs> I learned from the school of hard knocks. And then a widow lady opened up her home and I put some people there. And then uh, a businessman was opening, uh, building some condos and apartments in, in Stafford, Texas, a suburb of Houston, and said, Doug, if you'll teach a Bible study and an exercise class once a week in these new, this new uh, development, I'll give you a free apartment. Absolutely. Well, I, wasn't, I was just a baby Christian, but I was just sharing whatever God showed me. 
And so I put six more people there in that apartment. And later, a group of businessmen gave me a house in the suburbs called Glencairn, Bear Creek area near Katy, Texas, a suburb of Houston. And I didn't know there was deed restrictions, so I put 12 more there. And I got called by the police department, the housing association, and said, you can't do this. Especially one day when one of the kids that I took off the street was on the roof of my house and saying, the aliens are coming, the aliens are coming. So they said, deed restrictions don't allow you to do this. And so I ended up giving that house to a youth pastor that was moving into Houston. And that was how we started. But every day, having to believe for a bag of groceries versus where we are today, it's always been about a level of faith. And really, God gives us all measures of faith. If God gives you the faith of a mustard seed, and you can move a mountain with that, then the issue today is not an issue of our faith. It's an issue of our trust. Do we trust the Lord? God's word over you is true. What God promised me then, I had no idea where he'd take me today, but every day, I'm not looking for the grandiose. I'm not looking to, to, you know, we've been a part of stadium events and prayer events in Indonesia. We've been a part of seeing revivals in different parts of the world that people would never even know just because God called us to come underneath and serve and lift up others. And today, some of the largest churches in different parts of the world have a connection to our journey or prayer movements that have started in Indonesia, Malaysia, and other places that were part of our journey. And those unsung heroes that God was empowering, maybe you won't read it in a book and you won't, you won't get some acknowledgement for it, but nonetheless, they were helping to build the kingdom of God to bring glory to God. And God sees and God knows. It wasn't about the pat on the back. It was about loving God and loving people. But every day, it's not about going after those things. It's about every day being available to the Lord and walking in simple obedience every day. There's a lot of times God will bring us divine distractions. This past Christmas, uh, I just came back from Malaysia after ministering there, and, and uh, 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 the, Christmas, the day before Christmas Eve, I was at the office last Monday, and uh, I was just there for a few minutes. I hadn't been there for a month and was trying to get some things together. And uh, somebody in my office said, look, there's a pastor that called and there's a, a single parent dad. He's just got out of the hospital. He has a seven-year-old son and doesn't have anything for toys. I said, we've already given away all of our toys last week because we had a toy drive. And, and, uh, and so I just thought, you know, Lord, this is one of those divine moments. I said, you tell him to calm down, and we're going to, between us, we're going to put something together, and we're going to get him some money for this guy. And God just showed up. It was a beautiful moment, divine distraction. I walked out the door trying to lock up to leave. My wife was in the car. My wife speaks fluent Spanish because her family is originally from Monterey, Mexico. And so this person who could speak broken English comes to me and says, how do you get to Interstate 45? And I said, um, I said why? He goes, and he explains to me the story, the best I could understand, that he was visiting some friends and living in Dallas. He was from Guatemala, living in Dallas with some friends. And a day worker came and picked him up, says, I'll pay you for a month's worth of work if you come with me to Galveston to do some specialty tile work. He said, absolutely. So he went down there with this person. And they came back by my office in Houston. And the person said, oh, would you go and get us a couple of cups of coffee in this convenience store at the gas station? When he went in, the guy took off. He stiffed him for a month's worth of work. He wasn't asking me for money, and I discern a lot of times, I usually don't ever give money, but I just discerned since he wasn't asking for money that this was, an, was true. So I had him come out. I wanted clarity. I had my wife speak to him in Spanish and make sure, and the Lord put on our hearts to pay for a bus ticket and give him some extra money to get back to Dallas instead of just telling him where the freeway was. It was a divine distraction. 
And I was sharing with my daughter, my 11-year-old daughter, a life lesson. That how can we be about ministry if we're not doing ministry? Ministry is not about me. It's not about us. It's not about being self-absorbed with what we get out of it. Ministry is about the privilege of serving God and loving people. While men reach for thrones to build their own kingdoms, Jesus reached for a towel to wash men's feet. It's not about me. In fact, I love what David Livingston, the great uh, evangelist and missionary to southern Africa, said, and I've had the pleasure of ministering many, many times in, in that part of the world, in Zambia and Botswana over the last 20 plus, 25, 26 years. And I remember being in Livingston, Zambia, where that's named after David Livingston. But David Livingston used to say, why is it when an earthly king commissions us, we consider it an honor? But when the king of kings, our heavenly king commissions us, we call it a sacrifice. See, it's a privilege to serve God. Ministry is not about what it does for me, although I, ben I benefit from what I feel and the, the satisfying and the longing of my heart when I see God move, but it's not about me. It's not about my own self-centeredness and self-absorption. It's about the privilege of being commissioned by the king of kings, the heavenly king, to be a part of what he's up to. It's not a sacrifice. It's a privilege. Yes, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, that's not in such a way that we go, oh, pity me. It's about, wow, Lord, I get to offer myself on the altar of God, of my time, talent, and resources. Put myself on your altar that you would consume me with your fire and your glory fill my temple that you've purchased with your precious blood. God, it's a privilege. So we make ourselves available every day and walk in simple obedience every day. God will do things that we could never even comprehend, comprehend humanly. So every day I have a, a tune in my head. I go, Ayo, to remind me I'm serving the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, through availability and simple obedience. See, obedience is the highest form of worship. What we do in singing of instru with instruments and singing and songs and, and worship, th that should be the external expression of a song of the heart. Simple obedience is the highest form of worship. The first time the word worship is ever used in scripture is not in the context of singing. It's in the context of individuals being living worshipers who come to the temple in obedience to God. Simple obedience is the highest form of worship. So I think of what God is saying to us as individuals today. God hasn't forgotten you. Antioch Church... God knows your past. God knows where you are. He has not forgotten you. And that term, that word that you have as a congregation is more than you. It's about a mandate for a region, for God's promise that has been here for decades past that still is yet to be accomplished. I love what it says here that awaken, equip, and send because the first and the greatest institution that has ever lasted besides the institution of marriage in, the, in Genesis, I'm talking about the institution of the church that has lasted 2,000 plus years, that there was something about the Acts church, the power, we talk about Acts 2, we talk about the outpouring, but there was something about that church, and I, to keep it simple for me, I'm an old drug addict, an old homeless street kid, and I used to live on freight trains up and down the coast of Washington, Oregon, and California at the age of 18, dropped out of school with one credit to graduate. I was searching for something till my heavenly father found me. And so, but there, there, the first church, the Acts church, the power church that we think about, we talk about, and is a model to us all these years later, 
And the longest lasting institution that still lasts and is successful, when you try to stop it, it grows. When you try to take away its resources, it grows. Whatever you try to do to the church, it keeps on flourishing. I was telling Pastor Jay last night, friends of mine that I met in January of 1990, underground church leaders, some had spent nine years in hard labor camp to try to brainwash them to get back to, to deny Jesus, and they wouldn't do it, and revivals were breaking loose. While they were in hard labor, while they were in solitary confinement, the churches were growing four to six churches a week while their leaders were in prison. You can't stop what God has put his hand on because God's word is true. But there's something, to keep it simple, I think in terms of the, the five S's, what was it about the characteristics and the attributes of the Acts church that God breathed upon? One, it was a set-apart church. Now, the microcosm of a corporate is the individual. So an individual and the corporate church that is set apart. Secondly, it was sanctified. I don't mean there's some sort of self kind of uh, religious kind of uh, external piety, but it's one that says, God, uh, my life is not my own. I want to live a life that you would consecrate. Help me to go deeper in you and higher in expectation in you. Not some sort of external religious kind of piety, but something that is a willingness of the heart says, my life is not my own. It was a set apart church, a sanctified church. And thirdly, it was sacrificing church. It was willing to sacrifice, to make sacrifices for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom. Many of you have made great sacrifices, sometimes to your own hurt. Many of you have made decisions that maybe if you had compromised, you could have benefited even financially, but you chose to stay consecrated to honor God. I call that the perfect law of liberty in the book of James. And the perfect law of liberty is that you do the right thing even when you can get away with the wrong thing because that's what pleases God and you're sowing to your future because God guarantees that if you seek first the kingdom of God as righteousness, all these other things should be added to you. It was a sacrificing church. It, be, it was a serving church. From Acts 2 to Acts uh, uh, 6, uh, it was Acts 6 where, or Acts 8 where they had uh, the, the appointing of the deacons that we call deacons. That period was only a few chapters, but it was actually about eight years. And as things move, you have to begin to hear from God, be sensitive to the leading Holy Spirit, to move into the new seasons that you're in. And seasons of change are never easy, but it's a fact of life. We always honor the landmarks, but we have to know what is the manna for today so we know where we're going tomorrow. Seasons of change are not easy. But in this transition where the outpouring of God, they were sitting at the feet of, of the apostles and, and Solomon's porch, and they were daily worshiping together house to house. God was doing some incredible things, but they began to become self-absorbed. And God's mandate is always to go forth. So the Acts church was a set-apart church, a sanctified church, a sacrificing church, a, a serving church, began to serve the practical needs what I call the tangible expressions of Christ. I don't know how this happens. An old high school dropout, I went from, as my friend Michael Brown says, he went from LSD to PhD. I kind of did that too. I have no clue. I mean, he's the real PhD. I just kind of nickel and dime my way, got a bunch of honoraries and some earned degrees. But uh, it, was, it wasn't because I did it, the, I intended to go after it. I didn't want a piece of paper that said I knew about God. I wanted to know God. The paper just affirms what should be deeper. It's like the worship should be, be the ex external expression of what's already deeper. And so I began to open doors in favor and find myself 
being called by presidents of Muslim countries to have lunch or, or governors of different states to pray for them. Or uh, just recently, I was telling Pastor Jade that I was at a gathering in Malaysia and they pulled me up out of a reception at a wedding and asked if I could pray for the high commissioner of, of Britain, who will probably be the ambassador of Beijing to China and uh, pulled me aside to, to pray for him in, a, in the tea room there in, Malay, in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. I'm thinking, God, I don't get this. I, I, getting calls from people running for governor, running for this. I'm thinking, God, I'm just an old street preacher, just an old street kid that just wants to love you and love people. But God will take you from those places of your availability and obedience and put you in places you didn't expect as long as we never become respecters of persons, that we're, we have a heart for the down-and-outer and the up-and-outer because they all need Jesus. So that transition is that serving church, that we can become the tangible expression. I realize the reason many of them call on me is because of their perception of what I've done the last 32 years. Disaster relief or in Japan or the Philippines or Haiti. In Japan... Uh, uh, who would ever have thought? I had a Japanese revivalist during World War II when other Japanese Americans were being put into interim camps was at Baylor University. And uh, instead of being put in a camp, they let him stay there as a student, but God began to use him to start a revival that became a massive campus revival where thousands would go to the fields of Waco and begin to cry upon God and worship God back in the 40s during World War II. That began to spark in campuses across America. After World War II, he was the first missionary as a Japanese-American sent to Japan as a missionary from the North American Missions Board for the Baptist to Japan. God used him. There's books about him today. In Baylor University, students are now reading books about him. He's, he's gone to be with the Lord. He had become a friend of our family, and, and he's reading these, uh, they're reading books about him. They thought, we never knew because he was unassuming. He wasn't one going around bragging. He was just being who God called him to be. And one day we were sitting down after I was asked to speak at a gathering for all the Asian youth, Baptist youth at uh, Baylor University. And uh, afterwards went to a Chinese restaurant. It's amazing, you know, Pastor Jade's uh, part Korean. I'm, you're looking at me, is he Korean, Japanese, Chinese, Mexican? I was born in Japan. My mother was Japanese. And, uh, but everybody in Hawaii looks like us, so we like to go there. So, man, you make fun of me? But everybody thinks that we must like Chinese food. All Asians must like Chinese food. I, I was with the Lord Provost, the governor and mayor of uh, Aberdeen, Scotland, because one of our chapters of our ministry is there. And uh, afterwards, he goes, he gives me a tour of his offices, and we're talking. He goes, Doug, uh, where would you like to eat? We have a good Chinese restaurant in town. So I always tease people, and I said, look, I love Chinese food, but you know, we all look alike, but you know, I'm really part Japanese. No, I didn't mean, I know you didn't mean, I'm just messing with you. And uh, anyway, how did he get off into that? Where was I just before I said that? Oh, Baptist shoot. So afterwards, I'm meeting with, uh, with Hoshizaki-san, and he was up in his years, meeting with he and his wife at a Chinese restaurant, and he looks at me, and he grabs my hands, and he says, I believe God's going to use you to reach the royal family in the government of Japan, and revival's going to break loose. He goes, I've been praying my whole life. Less than 1% of the population of that country is Christian. But God's going to use you. And I'm thinking, Hoshizaki, I don't even speak Japanese. I mean, 
I speak bits and pieces, but I, I never learned. How can I do that? He goes, I don't know, but I feel like the Lord's saying that. Years later, I just put it in the back shelf, didn't really go to Japan hardly at all. And um, Cindy Jacobs was at a gathering, and she called me out in the back. And it was a women's gathering. I was just there to support as a Mordecai, one of my spiritual daughters hosting the gathering, Laura Zavala Allred. And uh, Cindy goes, Doug, are you here? And called me up and says, God's called you. You're going to reach the, you're going to be an Asian um, Wilberforce and you're going to reach the Diet of Japan. And I forgot that the Diet in Japan means their Congress or Parliament. I'm thinking, I'm not in the fitness business and nutrition. How am I going to reach the Diet of the country? And I put it on the shelf. And time and time again, and then all of a sudden, the tsunami hits. So we're there trying to bring resources. We're a small potato organization. We're trying to help get resources, work with people on ground, the churches, because I believe in empowering local churches in any crisis because they're the heart of the community. So we bypass a lot of red tape by coming down and finding churches who are already loving their community, empower them with resources so that when all the big boys are gone, you've left equity to the church in the community. And that's a, that's a core value that we believe in. And from Haiti to Japan to Philippines, wherever we are right now, uh, New York City, we, in fact, many times you read articles and those are ministries that we empower. You don't even see our name on it anywhere. Because I believe that if we are called to be an unseen thread to weave the net together. The, the, the fishing commercial nets, the little strings are called sea nothings. The fish get caught in the sea nothings. They can see the big rope and if we learn to be the see nothings and just link arm and arm together, be that net that God's using together, then at the end of the day, the kingdom is advanced, Jesus is glorified, and we get to participate. Jim Gall had a word one time in Houston before we ever knew each other years ago. And he was speaking at Calvary Community Church in Houston. And he said, Houston's going to become a city known like a like a, a string of pearls, a string, string, stringer. And it's going to be a city where it's going to be known where somebody cares around the world. String, string, string. He didn't know that there was a guy named Doug Stringer who was the founder of Somebody Cares. But the pastors knew, and they're going, oh my gosh. And the owner says, oh my gosh. And he's going, string, string, stringer. There's somebody named Stringer. And he went on with this, this word so that that was a confirming word of the things that we were doing. And what happened was during Katrina and Rita, Houston became known as a great benevolent city because 250,000 evacuees came and the church rose to the occasion to help them. But something about the string of pearls that I've, I realized, my last name is Stringer, and I just bought my wife and my daughter some pearls because I want them to remember that our name doesn't belong to us. What we do is to be the unseen thread of the string of pearls. That it doesn't matter who gets the credit. Because it, when you see a beautiful string of pearls around the neck of a, of a woman, you go, oh, that string of pearls is so beautiful. But you notice the individual pearls. You don't say, how beautiful is the string that holds the pearls together? If we are, are willing to be the unseen thread, the string, if we're willing to help others become that pearl, if we're willing to be those who are like the sea nothings in the fishing net, God can use us in greater measure. So we are to be servants, the tangible expression of Christ in the community. The reason we have access to, to these different places, not because we're great communicators, I'm a great preacher, it's just because they see something in perception of the church. And so I found myself before the president and the vice president of the Japanese Medical Association, before the, the, the representative of the prime minister, 
soon beginning to pray, giving words of knowledge to different members of their Congress, their diet. And I remembered the word that Cindy had and the word that Hoshizaki-san had. And then my last trip to Japan, I met with some high-level senior members of their government in a private meeting who asked me to pray for them again, many of them not Christians, but asking to pray, and said, we're thinking about starting a Christian political party in Japan. I'm thinking, why would you do that with less than 1% Christian? And they said, we have a phenomenon we can't explain. Before the earthquake and tsunami, less than 1% professed to be Christian. Since the tsunami and earthquake, because of the outpouring of compassion by Christians around the world, there are now over 7% showing that they want to know more about Christianity. So much so that Chiba University is now has a course on history of Christianity in Japan. So much so that some of these government leaders are now asking a group out of the Netherlands to start a 24-hour television network in Japan strictly on what is Christianity and Bible studies. Because many, many Japanese won't go to church because they don't want to go against the family traditions or because they work six days a week and they want to rest one day. So they're going to start doing it first to get the strategy of how to reach them in their homes where nobody else will know. Like we're doing in Iran. An Iranian businessman pays for me to be on TV every week in Iran. And we are seeing millions of people being impacted on a weekly basis in Iran. And one person who, was, who did not believe in Christ was going to commit suicide, happened to watch one of the programs, gave their life to the Lord. Today I got the privilege of meeting that family on the border of Iran with leaders from 500 underground churches. We were training them for 10 days, encouraging them. We don't need to teach them how to go evangelize. They're doing it but just to encourage them in in sound doctrine. And I met this woman who literally got healed by God, saved by God, who was a radical against Christ, hated Christians, was like Saul before he became Paul, who wanted to go persecute Christians. And now she and her husband oversee over 500 underground churches in, in Iran. In the midst of all the darkness, God's up to something. See, it's strictly being available and obedient. And then the fifth S in the book of Acts, and the church here at Antioch, this congregation that is going to permeate this region to to draw forth God's word and promise, that God's saying, come forth. I haven't forgotten my promise. I haven't forgotten my word. It's time. This is the season. Prepare. You've been pruned, but I've pruned even good for what's about to happen for greater and better. We've got to be spiritually ready Prepare ourselves mentally, emotionally, spiritually. Get into the word, meditate on the word, read the word, and speak the word. We don't have to beg God to do what he already wants to do. We just have to touch his heart and he will move. We speak his word. When Moses was told by God to strike the rock with the rod the first time and water came into the desert, the second time, God didn't tell him to strike the rock again. He said, speak to the rock. To strike the rock again is to crucify Christ over again. But out of frustration, he went back to doing what he normally knew how to do in the natural rather than hearing from God for, for, from God for the now. And we have to be careful not to try to do things the way they used to be done just because it worked that way before. We, rep- we honor the landmarks, but we don't have to do things the same way they've always been done. We need to get the mind of the Lord for today and to hear from God today. When I was helping with the America for Jesus up in Philadelphia last year, I had to travel back and forth quite a bit, and I met a retired Wall Street businessman. And he told me, he said, 
growing up, I didn't have a relationship with my parents very well. So when I became a father, I wanted to be at everything for my children. So I'd come from New York City and I'd get back to Philadelphia. I wanted to be with my kids every weekend, every uh, sporting event. And my son, Brandon, became a very well-known and very, very good rower of, of, with the crew. And so all these university scouts were coming to watch him in this big regatta. And my wife said, honey, you're always embarrassing Brandon. You go out there and you scream and you holler and people go, you think you're crazy. You're probably embarrassing our son. So he went to his son Brandon and he said, son, do I embarrass you? Because I'm just so proud of you. And I, I, there's thousands of people. And I, I just don't want to embarrass you. And I'm, but I'm so proud of you, son. I want to be there for you. And Brandon looked at his dad and said, dad, you don't get it, do you? Of all the thousands of screaming people and voices, and we're coming towards that finish line. Of all the noise and all the sounds, I don't hear them. I only hear one voice. I hear your voice. He only hears the voice of his father. And when he said that, it reminded me that of all the noise pollution and all the distractions that are out there, we have got to come to that place of hearing only one voice, the voice of our father. Because he's about to empower us He's about to fulfill his promise, his word that is true over us, to empower us and equip us because those who he appoints and anoints, he also commissions with his authority. He's about to do something. We need to hear clearly the voice of the Father. And to do that, we can't hear the noise of the world. We need to meditate on his word, be intentional. The flesh wars against the spirit. We need to be intentional about hearing his word, reading his word, and now not striking Christ and begging him, but saying, Lord, your word says, Ephesians 3.10, it's your intention to give your authority to the seen and unseen realm to the church. And we are the church. God in Ephesians 3.20, it says, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above what we ask or think or even imagine according to the power that works in us. When we recognize we're nothing of ourselves, but Christ in us as we've offered ourselves as living sacrifices before the Lord in our time, talent, and resources. God's fire consumes us and his glory fills our temple that wherever we go and our feet go and where our feet take us, wherever we go, even without the word being spoken, that the presence of God is with us. And when God's presence is with us, darkness is dispelled. There is an authority in your life when you recognize who you really are in Christ. So we go from being set apart, sanctified, and, and sacrificial, a serving tangible expressions of Christ. These presidents and these leaders of nations, the police chief of, of Baltimore who was desperate and said the Eastern District is, is the highest crime murder rates in the country. We need help. And he finally said, I don't care about church and state. I need help. And the church, as we rallied together, began to be on site for insight. We walked on the Eastern District. We prayer walked. And soon drug addicts and drug dealers are feeling convicted. And soon John Hopkins began to get involved. And business leaders began to get involved. Now there's a transfer transformation spiritual and practical in that region that others around the country are coming to that city saying how did you do this one of my spiritual sons has been appointed as the is the he's one of the commanders of the eastern district has now been appointed for the whole city of baltimore to to take the model of the eastern district and do something in the whole and now he works directly under the police commissioner and the mayor you see when the church just bees the church we don't do church we are the church So it became from a serving, then it goes to ascending. There's multiplication of ministry. That's why I love that up there, sending. 
That's why this church and the church that understands the Acts model of set apart, sanctified, sacrificing, willing to serve and be tangible expression of Christ in a very real way without just our words being spoken, but by showing Christ in very real and tangible ways to those in need. And then becomes a church that says, we don't need to hold, we need to multiply. I love the vision of this church that as God equips, then God will send forth to multiply, to do church plant, to send missions. And what God does here in this school called Antioch Church, what God does in the church that comes and gets a fresh revelation of God's word over them in the Colorado Springs area will not stay here. As they say in Las Vegas, what happens in Las Vegas stays there. Well, what happens here won't stay here. What God does will transcend time and geography and nations of the world will see that it wasn't just a bastion of international headquarters for missions and ministries and churches. It's going to be a city that God's word has come true and God's people have been changed, and the heart, the church of Colorado Springs, has been awakened, and the nation is going to be impacted, and around the world, people will hear what God is doing right here at the church of Antioch. I'm not finished. I'm going to have to quit in a minute. I haven't even gotten in a message. I was just kind of on a warm-up here. Can I have 10 more minutes? Go with me to the book of Acts, chapter 10. Look at somebody next to you and say, A-O. Available and obedient. Every day. The power of prayer, compassion, and generosity. This is a story of Cornelius, the first four verses. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian Regiment. This is a man who was highly feared and regarded and respected. To kind of give us a picture, it would be kind of like the special forces of of our day. Uh, You know, we have military officers and others that are here in this congregation, those who have served in the military. You understand when you have a person of rank, a person who oversees a regiment, there is a place of demanded honor and respect a sense of human fear in respect to that person and honoring them. My, step, my biological father was what was called underwater demolition frogman during the Korean War. And that's how he met my mother when he came through Japan. I was born out of wedlock, but he did come back and marry my mother when I was, just before I was three years old and we came to America. During the Vietnam War, they became known as the Navy SEALs. And so it was during that time, during the Vietnam War, he was gone quite a bit and he and my mother went through a divorce she ended up marrying another career military hospital corpsman that became my stepdad, who was an alcoholic and atheist. And so I never really had a relationship with a father. It was awkward. I loved my dad, but he was absent from the time I was about 10 years old. I had a, a love-hate relationship with my stepdad because he was abusive, alcoholic, and an atheist. It was always hard. I didn't know when he was going to blow up like a powder keg. And I didn't understand some of the things they went through until January of 1990, when I went with 17 Vietnam veterans into Vietnam who were going because of survivor's guilt, they wanted to go back to find the places where they had lost their friends. But we were landing on that plane coming in from Thailand. As we began to land, I look across the plane and these 17 vets, I saw the looks on their faces. They looked in when the pilots said we're coming into Vietnamese airspace. I saw the tears. I began to hear the stories. And it was during that time I began to have a whole new respect for my dad and stepdad. 
I didn't justify their actions, but I began to understand what they went through. And it was during that time I had a, a change of heart of knowing how to minister to my dad and stepdad. And as a result, I led my stepdad and my stepdad to the Lord before they went to be with the Lord. And today we still have ministry going on in relationships in Vietnam all these years later. So I understand what it means to be a person who is strong, respected, this, this, this military leader. But it goes on to say in verse 2, a dev- he was a devout man and who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he was clearly in a vision. He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming and saying to him, Cornelius. And when he observed him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? So he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now, interestingly, as we would know being a born-again believer, he was not a Christian. How then could he have a memorial before heaven set up for him? If he doesn't even have a revelation who Jesus is yet. Now get where I'm going here. We still have to call upon the name of the Lord. But Jesus will reach out to even those who don't know him if they have certain attributes that attract his presence. There is a person in, in Pakistan who saw one of the TV shows from Iran. The way we do is do subtitles in Farsi, but it's aired all through the Middle East so people who understand English can even watch it. And um, he wanted a Bible. So some of the, the people that could get to him had to check it out to make sure it wasn't a setup because many Christians are being persecuted in that region. By the time they got there, they brought him a New Testament. I mean, they brought him a Bible, full Bible, and said, we suggest you begin to read the book of John first. This is in a village of Pakistan. And, uh, and so he says, he begins to read and goes, oh, I already have this. They said, well, you contact us, you wanted a Bible, how did you get it? He goes, well, while I've been waiting for you to get here, every day a man would come into the village and he would tell me to write words down, word for word. So I began to write down everything he said and it turns out to be the exact same thing you're telling me to read. It must have been an angel of the Lord. See, when there are certain things that attract God's presence in Christians and even unbelievers that God will bring, he will move heaven and hell to find his way to give revelation to us. Amen? And so here's Cornelius. What was it about him? One, it says he was given a heavenly vision because one, he was a devout man. What does that mean? He was sincere and earnest in his religious pursuit. He was one that even the Jews had a high respect for. Normally, they hated the Romans. They hated the centurions. They hated those who oppressed them. But yet, there was something about him that they had a high regard for. He was benevolent to them. He was kind to them. He was strong yet sensitive. And it says his whole household believed with him. They, They wanted to believe with him. Why? Because there was something about him. He didn't force anything. He lived in lifestyle that others respected and were drawn to. And then it says here that he, he feared the Lord. How do you fear the Lord? You know, when this nation was first founded, not everybody in our founding fathers were born again Christians that, that believed the way we believe, but at least there was a tension of the day that there was still some reverence for the things of God. Today we have no regard, no respect for elders, disrespect for elders. There's, there's, there's no sense of honor. And we wonder why there's such a blatant attack on the name of the Lord today. 
It's no longer just a, no, I don't, I don't want to go to church, I don't believe. It's now, now they have to find a way to proactively assault the church and somehow assault the name of the Lord himself. At least when we first started, there was a tension. Even up until about 10, 15 years ago, there was a somewhat of a, a tension where there was a personal reverence of the things that are, are pious or the things that are religious. And so here was a man who had some sort of honor and reverence to the things that he perceived to be religious or, or the Lord. Thirdly, he gave alms generously. In other words, he was a man who gave of himself and gave generously to the temple. He gave generously to the things he didn't even believe in. He gave generously to those in need. He was a kind man, a charitable man, something about giving of our time, talent, and resources sacrificially that God consumes us and blesses us with. And number four, he prayed to God always. Paul spoke about how to pray without ceasing. But how does this guy pray to God always when he doesn't really understand? It wasn't about what he knew how to do externally. But his private posture now influenced his public position. Who he was behind closed doors, God saw. And was able to visit him with a heavenly vision that transformed his life and those around him. What is it that attracts God's presence in our life? It's our availability and simple obedience. To be set apart is to, to live a life of holiness before God. Again, not an external type of holiness, but we serve a triune holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And when I'm in the presence of a holy God, I'm undone, Isaiah 6. I'm undone of this flesh. In 2 Chronicles 5, it says, when the priests came out of the holy place, they could not come according to division. Why? Because when you've been in the presence of God, you can't let divisions come. You're undone in the presence of the living God. And we come out of that presence with one voice, one sound, one purpose greater than us. It doesn't matter what perfume or cologne somebody's wearing or not wearing. It doesn't matter the idiosyncrasies. Now we are no longer separate, but we're one in the Lord. We're part of something bigger than ourselves. It's a kingdom thing. In Acts 26, in closing, in verse 15, in verse 14, this is when Saul is relating to when he was Paul, when he's relating to when he was Saul, it says, when he, we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's a hard for you to kick against the goads. This happened to this woman in Iran that got radically saved. And I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Okay, Saul had a revelation of the cross and the power of the resurrection. And as soon as he had that revelation of the cross and the power of the resurrection, and Jesus revealed himself, Jesus, I revealed myself to you with this purpose. Each of us had a Saul moment. Each and every one of us, at some point, the Lord invaded our world, arrested our soul, revealed himself to us, and we said, wow, I never knew that before. God is real. I have a tow truck driver that was 19-year methadone addict. Jared, you remember Bob Ferguson, tow truck driver. He came to one of my Bibles. I did an eight-week teaching on the book of Leviticus. And he came to the Bible study because he was afraid that his friends were getting involved in a cult. 
And he was a tow truck driver, 19-year methadone heroin addict. He comes, the Bible says, was compelled to come every week. On the eighth one, the title was called Mission Accomplished. That when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, he wasn't saying, I'm defeated. He was saying, it is finished. Mission accomplished. So when we come to that revelation, so I remember Bob Ferguson on the ninth, that eighth lesson, that book's become known called Born to Die that We May Live Now on the Work of the Cross, Power of the Resurrection. But he, after the eighth one, he just walks around and goes, God is real. God is real. <laughs> he got a revelation. Somewhere in your life, in my life, Jesus invaded our world and we got a revelation of the work of the cross and the power of the resurrection. We went, God is real. As Keith Green would say, we got bananas for Jesus. And that moment, the purpose you thought you had in your life is no longer your ultimate purpose. Jesus says, I revealed myself to you with this purpose. That means there's a purpose. What is that purpose? And he says it very clearly. To make you a minister and a witness, both of the things you have seen and of the things which you have yet to see or reveal to you. There are things you do every day in God fulfilling his word over you that you don't even see yet. 32 years ago when I said, Lord, I'll make myself available to you and obedient, I had no clue that he would have me doing what I'm doing today. And I never want to forget where I've come from. So that's why my spiritual grandfather was a man named Leonard Ravenhill. He would say, Doug, always take God serious and never take yourself too serious. I never want to forget where I've come from. I want to remember. That's why we do what we do in our ministries and the chapters that we set up in helping other cities and communities to do the same thing. I don't care if they call it nobody cares. Let's just do what God says. It doesn't matter who gets the credit. Let's just get in the presence of the Lord, a holy God, honor him, get in the holiness of God, walk in humility before God. Humility doesn't come with being self-effacing or, or, or self-defacing, uh, uh, but it is, is one that says, God, I want humility with confidence because humility with confidence says I can only do it in Christ, not in the flesh. We become bold as a lion, not because we can do it in the natural, because we recognize we're nothing without him. We're serving a triune holy God. Holy is a father, holy is a son, holy is the spirit of God and a threefold cord cannot be easily broken. God is always in agreement with himself, his word, character, nature, and spirit. And we get aligned with him, in agreement with him. There's nothing he can't do in and through us. I've called you to be a minister and a witness. The Bible says a minister of what? We're to be ministers of reconciliation. Because of what Christ has done for us, we now have been reconciled to the Heavenly Father through Christ that we now become ministers of reconciliation to others. I had a guy who hated me. I mean, really hated me. He was a part of ACT UP, Queer Nation. He was a disc jockey, a secular disc jockey. Uh, was, I found that he had AIDS. He would come to meetings like this and try to disrupt meetings if I was speaking. And one day he called me on a two-hour radio show, a Christian one. He found I was going to be on a two-hour live call-in show. He called, changed his name, and kept on harassing me. And finally, I realized who it was. I said, is this so-and-so? He goes, uh, uh, yeah, it is. I said, where are all your friends when you really need them? He goes, my friends, we stick together. We cut for one another. We take care of each other. I go, really? Last month, when you couldn't pay your rent and your light bill, where were your friends? He goes, how did you know about that? How did you know I couldn't pay my rent and light bill? I said, it doesn't matter how we found out. 
but we are the ones who paid for your light bill and rent anonymously. He didn't know what to say. I never knew I would ever have to reveal it. We just did it because God said to do it. But here was that moment that it shut the mouth of the lion. And the night before he passed away, I was out of the, out of the state. I had another young man that we had discipled who came out of that lifestyle, also with HIV. I had him go to the hospital to talk to this person. And all he could talk about is, why did you guys do this? Why did you do that? And as a result, he was able to lead him to Christ and he died the next day of AIDS. I shared that story in a large church in another part of Texas. And a woman up in her years came to me and said, can I ask you a question? Was his name such and such? I said, yes, did you know him? She goes, began to weep. And she said, that was my son. I had prayed that somehow the Lord would reach him. See, God will knock us off our animals. If we're faithful to pray, we're faithful to be those who are earnest and sincere in our pursuit of God. If we're those who understand it's not about us, it's about honoring God, loving God, loving people, be a tangible expression of Christ, God will do things far beyond what you can ever think or imagine because we're ministers of reconciliation. It's not about what we do behind the pulpit, it's about who we are every day. Available and obedient. And then he says, I reveal myself to you with this purpose, to be a minister and a witness. The Bible says there are true witnesses and false witnesses. Proverbs 14, 25 says, a true witness rescues lives and saves souls. So what God's called us to do is not forget what our greater purpose is. That together as a mended net being cast together, God can do a work that's far greater than any one of us can do with one fishing pole. I catch one fish with a fishing pole. But if I'm linked up with each and every one of you, unseen threads putting us together and together we're being cast to the community, then God's gonna bring a greater harvest than we could ever imagine of things that we've seen, things we have not yet seen. What is your name with the black leather jacket? Brenda, God hasn't forgotten you. There are things you have prayed You've had a heart for other people, things you have prayed, you've even pondered in your heart. You need not even say really publicly because you've been carrying this burden. And God says, I've heard your cry and I have not forgotten you. Sir, what is your name again? Doug, yeah, you picked me up this morning, right? We all look alike, don't we, Doug, Doug? <laughs> Didn't even recognize myself. <laughs> Doug, there have been times you could have made decisions to get sidetracked and compromise. Others may, you may not. And that's the thing I teach my family and I teach others around me. Look, we, don't, we never judge others. I don't want to be critical or judgmental. I don't want to carry that burden. But others may, you may not, is a policy we live by. There are times you could have made some decisions, but you chose to take a higher road that only God saw. And God is saying, because you've honored me, the perfect law of liberty... I'm about to do some things for you that you have not even asked for. Just like the woman who gave the upper room of her home, she and her husband, for Elisha. And she didn't ask for the gift of a child, but Elisha sought after the Lord and gave her what she did not even ask for. God's about to do something for you that you did not ask for, but you're going to know it's something he knew was already in your heart that you would like. Now, I believe in the gleaning principle. If I'm giving someone a word, just like with Ruth and Boaz, 
I believe when someone receives a word in a corporate setting, if it fits for you, take it for your own. You can glean the word. There are things in your life right now that you thought God had forgotten you. And I'm gonna share just a brief picture of my daughter when she was seven years old. She went with me to the office. It was closed for the day. I asked her to stay in the prayer room while I went off to the men's room. And so I was gonna lock her in the offices, go down the building hall to the men's room and come back. She's okay, daddy. She's worshiping in the, in the prayer room and worship songs going. She's worshiping and dancing. And then I'm coming down the hall of the building and I hear the double doors of my of offices and I hear my daughter screaming, daddy, daddy, somebody help me. And so I ran in the back door, ran down the hall. Honey, what's wrong? What's wrong, baby duck? What's wrong? I call her baby duck, my wife, mama duck. What's wrong, baby duck? What's wrong? She grabs my legs and she wouldn't let go. Daddy, daddy, go, what's wrong, honey? Please tell me what's wrong. She goes, Daddy, I thought you forgot me. I said, Honey, I would never forget you. I know that you wouldn't forget me on purpose, Daddy, but I thought you forgot I was here. And besides, boys aren't supposed to take so long to go to the bathroom. <laughs> but when she said that, I realized that many of us along the journey, even as believers, feel like God has forgotten us. And my word to you today is God has not forgotten you. From that very moment, he revealed himself to you and gave a revelation of the cross and the power of the resurrection. Just like we saw, he gave you a purpose greater than what you've lived thus far. And he's called you to be a minister of reconciliation, to be a tangible expression of Christ, and to be a true witness who saves souls and rescues lives. There's a whole lot of people that are shipwrecked in the sea of despair. All around us, multitudes upon multitudes. How can we sit on the beach of comfort and apathy when so many are still shipwrecked in the sea of despair? This is your moment. This is your time. I declare Colorado Springs, God's word is true. This was called to be a place that the nations knew God was real. Lord, we declare that the church heart is awakened for this moment. I pray for everybody in the hearing of my voice in Antioch Church, in this Antioch city, in the church of Colorado Springs, that, Father, I pray right now that you would awaken us to your promises, that your word is true, thy kingdom come on earth that is in heaven, that, Lord, we're not going to live in the compromise, we're not going to settle in the status quo, but, Lord, we're asking you to resurrect what you have already spoken to us individually, as families, as a congregation, as the church, Father, that we would see the heart of the church awaken and lives being transformed. We declare salvation, healing, liberation, freedom, deliverance. We declare revival and save souls, oh God. Souls, 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 God, are in the balance. And I declare your church is saying yes to you today. And they are rising up to a purpose greater than themselves, oh God, attracting your presence, empowered from heaven, anointed from heaven, commissioned with the authority of heaven to go make a difference in a very real and tangible way. In Jesus' name. I'm not finished, but I quit. Let me ask a question. I don't care if this is with 10 kids on the streets, if it's with 5,000 pastors in Bogota, Colombia, or 30,000 in a crusade in Indonesia. I don't care if it's just a few or if it's thousands. God is calling us as the church to a new, fresh level of consecration, to restore to us the joy of his salvation, and to remind us of our purpose that's greater than us. There are five things that kept all of Israel out of the promised land for 40 years. Those same five things keep even Christians out of their destiny.
First Corinthians 10 calls it this, lust. Second is idolatry. What is that? Anything that masters or possesses your affections more than Jesus. Three, sexual immorality. We don't need a dictionary to figure that out. Maybe you haven't acted out fornication or adultery. Maybe as a single person, you're going, how far can I get away with it without it really being sin? If you've already asked that question, you've gone too far. It's not about how far can we get away with it. It's about being in love with Jesus and honoring him for what he's already done for us. Maybe there are those here today who think that in private, you can look at things on television or, or the internet and think nobody else knows, but still God sees, God knows. It's who we are behind closed doors when nobody else can see that determines the power of God or lack of it in public. Private posture affects public position. Prayerlessness in private is powerlessness in public. Who are we? God's looking for men and women of courage and character that he can endue from heaven for the days in which we live. Sexual morality. Fourth is tempting Christ. What does that mean? To say we're Christians around Christians but live like the devil out there putting Jesus to the test rather than living a life that is worthy of this greatest sacrifice of all time. And number five is one we don't like to talk about, but I call it the spiritual immune deficiency disease. Cells of the body that eat up other cells of the body. It's called murmuring, backbiting, gossiping. I've seen great vision, great congregations start with a bang and end with a fizzle. Because somehow a spirit of murmuring starts, undermining God's constituted authority, undermining corporate vision, undermining one another, finding fault with what familiarity breeds contempt, begin to undermine one another. And rather than focus on the greater purpose, they begin to look at their own self-absorbed needs. And they begin to tear each other down. If there are things in your life right now that you know are not pleasing to the Lord, eyeball to eyeball, face to face. I never have people bow their heads. I have friends that are dead, assassinated, imprisoned because they, it cost them something to stand for their faith. Right now, this morning, this afternoon, all it costs us is some pride. So on the count of three, if there are things in your life you know that have been holding you back or not pleasing to the Lord, then it's time just to leave it on the altar of repentance so God can do a fresh anointing on us and we can walk into our destiny. So on the count of three, if there's things in your life, eyeball to eyeball, face to face, it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks, this is your time to say, God, I want it out. I'm going on with my purpose and destiny you've called me to. So if things in your life that are not pleasing to the Lord, on the count of three, stand with me. One, two, three. Thank you for your honesty.